Hi, I'm Susie McAvale. I live and work on Wurundjeri Wirrawong country in Nam, Melbourne, Australia. And working in education, I've noticed that in this COVID era, young people are not coping with life as well as they used to. But what I've come to understand is these symptoms are signs of a bigger picture and that some of us adults, we also need some help with how to deal with life changes, particularly when it comes to understanding ourselves and relating to one another and our kids. The Let's Check In podcast shares stories and strategies of real people who commit to paving positive ways forward through uncertainty. We talk about the things that you didn't learn at school, that you wish someone had prepared you for. So, let's check in. Hi, and welcome to the Let's Check In podcast. For this episode, I'm so thrilled to introduce you to Dr. Byrne Nichols, an experienced teacher, school leader, and research lead in schools, both across Australia and internationally. Byrne has delivered leadership programs that look at things like the neuroscience of learning and the vulnerability of leading. She's also spent time studying how to grow students' thinking abilities. Dr. Byrne Nichols, welcome. It's so great to see you. Thank you. Good to be here. By trade, you're a teacher, but how did you become interested in the space of learning and leading in education? I think I fell into it, to be honest. I remember being um, very young and, you know, you start looking at what you want to do next in year 12 and I thought, I don't know. And so I just um, applied for many different um, courses and ended up in education and and so I didn't choose it, it chose me. And so I noticed that I had, I don't know, well, I don't know what the word is, I, refrain from gift but I just found it very easy to work with young people in the secondary setting and just found you know the importance of relationship and connection and really seeing young people and how much they responded um, to both me but also their own learning journey Um, and I, I realized very young in life that you know, learning comes from the relationship first, not the other way around, not from curriculum. Mm. I think that then has really been the theme of everything I've done, whether I'm working with leaders or whether I'm leading some aspect of a school. It's obviously the functionality and the management side of things is important, but more importantly is establishing those relationships. And I've always enjoyed that. And I just enjoy getting to know people and trying to understand them and work out not how they tick but how they can um, keep growing and grow their confidence and, you know, go beyond their potential, which was what I loved in the classroom too. So I think it's more a mindset and a worldview that has developed over the years from that initial recognition of relationship first. In your view, um, how do you think students are going at the moment? You know, it's been a rough few years for everybody but how do you think you know students are coping are they okay some are some aren't I think that's the evolution of time um I think there is definitely something we can't put our finger on yet we're only slightly post-covid and I think there's been a lot of societal changes that have impacted people's um, worldviews their behaviors their understandings of the world and I think it's complex because everyone is a unique individual and when we start putting people in boxes I get very scared um, so I think in general, 
Um, what it has amplified, and I don't mind saying this, is that it's amplified a failed system um, in education at the moment. It is a very old system that um, started for different reasons and different purposes. Um, it was based on the behaviourist model, which was to create workers um, for a capitalist society and, you know, to have behaviours and competencies that can be measured. And so there was very much a focus on external measurements, which is still with us today. I'm wondering if we, we, we now are at a point in time where we have to circle back to almost being anti-behaviourist, which is self-understanding, self-regulation, self-awareness, self-attunement, but within the collective so that it's for whatever we are self-regulating or attuning to, it's in service to not just self but to our local communities. And I guess that goes back to Indigenous wisdom as well, that we are greater when we are a community and where we know the diversity rather than the the mono that we see in schools is, you know, our greatest um, potential lies in our difference and knowing and honouring that difference rather than being in this awful competitive comparative space that is education. And um, that's one of the reasons I've moved away from it, even though I'm supporting it. It's very painful for me to watch the burnout in our leaders, which are symptoms of a system that is is not flourishing, that is not creating joy and awe and wonder and people wanting to be there, which are the symptoms of a decaying system, whether you're in nature or whether you're in an organisation. But for whatever reason, we're too fearful to read the signs of the times and respond with hope. I see, I often say, it's not a time to despair, it's a time to be joyful because there is we can rethink things. We can, rather than see a crack as a void to be filled, it's it's actually a void of opportunity to carefully consider what could come next that would be in service to not just individuals but our whole living system, which is our home, our earth. So, you know, we've got to stop thinking in compartments and silos. There's so many people across the world in so many different ways talking like this. This isn't me you know, and different names for it, regeneration, whatever. But we're recognising that tipping point of what we're doing is not working. I think it was Socrates who said, well, don't keep doing it if it's not working, which is what we seem to be stubbornly sort of um, subscribing to. So I really am very passionate about how do we heal and hold the generation that have gone through COVID but also how they can be the turning point for change where they are literally the canaries in the coal mine saying it is not good, it is not a good place to be because my mental health and my well-being are the symptoms of that. And we need to be brave. We need to be courageous. And I love that word courageous because it comes from the Latin core, which is of the heart. To be courageous isn't about bravery. It's about coming from the heart. And I, I think we're moving from, you know, the behaviourist externalisation of everything to us needing to take responsibility and take back some of our autonomy. Mm. I love the work of Carol Sanford, if anyone's really interested. She's an amazing thinker around the need to, to go back to self-regulation, self-think. You know, we've lost the art of thinking. We don't think for ourselves anymore. That's why we have conspiracy theories and we have such factionalism and you're right and I'm wrong. We're not comfortable with grey and, and considering different worldviews and I think it's time for us to all grow up and mature rather than be parented by external factors and organisations and behaviours, whatever you want to, theories, and say, well, 
you know, we are grown-ups and we need to start acting like it and recognise that everything we think and do has consequences, positive, neutral, negative. And I think that's what the vision for education needs to be, is how do we provide the conditions like a garden? We provide the conditions for flourishing. What do we need to intentionally create? Not just young people, but our teachers who are leaving in droves want to be in this flourishing garden of learning rather than this let's keep sorting them. So for the workforce, why should education be in service to the workforce? Shouldn't it be in service to us being a community that holds and grows and keeps learning and evolving? Because the only thing that doesn't change is change. It's it's just a constant, and yet we're fighting to hang on to that control that is just an illusion. So, yeah, I am quite passionate about this because I have been in education all my life and I'm more passionate, more energised than I ever have been because I think there's lots of people of my wisdom age, it sounds better than getting old, um, who, who can see what's going on. You know, we hear of things like, you know, teacher shortage and this sort of thing and I'm thinking, no, we don't have a teacher shortage. We have teachers choosing not to be in the system. So how do we bring them back into a more nourishing um, environment that is conducive for learning for all? And that really means we have to rethink the whole systems. And if you're a systems thinker, that's pretty complex as well. And there's a lot of stakeholders. There's a lot of people with money in the, in the pie that they're not interested the element of the system needs to change, it really strikes a chord with me, but so too does this topic of confidence and where does confidence come from in decision-making? And it starts with courage. That's where it starts. And once you build that up, you build a sense of resilience around that. And I feel like at the moment that there's something holding people back in the system to make those changes. And for me, I kind of see that as there's like this enormous fear and anxiety around wanting to make change. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are around that. Yeah, I have many thoughts. (laughs) My current thinking is when you take away people's capacity to make choices, and that's certainly what happens in schools, is we very quickly take away choice not for only young people but for also for teachers and how we teach and what we teach and we get measured and what have you I think once you keep taking away choice from people it's almost you become atrophied in your capacity to make choices or you become very cynical and think well what's the point you know someone external to me will just push me down and say no this is the way we do things here so Mm. I wonder if it's a combination of choice and confidence that you know we have to almost relearn how to to make considered choices, which goes back full circle again to our capacity to think. And I prefer another word which comes from spiritual traditions, which is the capacity to discern, which is a very slow process, which is a very carefully considered process. So we're moving into really counter-cultural ways of being, which goes against the old behaviourist one of, you know, meet the needs of society, to we need to slow down to re-engage with our own capacity to think for ourselves and to make good decisions or considered decisions that benefit not just me but for all within my sphere of influence and beyond. So I'm, I'm wondering if that's at the heart of this as well. And the problem sometimes with systems thinking is it can be overwhelming and seem too big 
and therefore we'd feel disenfranchised. My father always has said, if you cannot do it in the small, don't expect to be able to do it in the big. And I wonder if we get, because I'm a big sister, I can see things and it overwhelms me. And yet when I come back to that locus of control, which actually starts within yourself, that's where the choice is. That's where the power and the confidence starts. It doesn't come from the externals. Always comes from the internal and your relationship with self and then relationship with others and planet. And yeah, I'm just wondering if we, we've atrophied as humans in terms of our capacity to be that whole thing of Maslow, you know, self-actualizing. You know, this topic of looking after self and really being um, in tune with self, that brings me to the question about the adults in the system, in the education system, and the teachers who are in the classrooms. How have you seen the lockdowns and the changes to life as we know it impact the adults in education? I taught through lockdowns here in Melbourne, so I have a first-hand experience of that. And I did some research in schools to around the well-being impact, and it was too early. We couldn't see the trees for the woods. We were in survival mode. Um, but one of the key themes that came through for both parents, teachers and students was the loss of social connection, and the screen didn't cut it. Do you know that that real need for us to be in community, face-to-face, and that was a real grief, I believe, that young people went through and teachers went through because I, I started this conversation, it's about relationship, and yes, you can do what we're doing now, but we have a relationship, we know each other, we've had many, many talks, and I have that with my students, but in, in the old system of learning, which is, you know, we're studying this and we're doing it in this period of time, and it just almost cut off my senses, my intuition, I didn't have what we call in teaching a tacit knowledge of what was I was picking up in the classroom. I cannot explain what happens to experienced teachers is we know what our 25 students are doing all at the same time and we know when to get in there and to, to adjust and what have you. So it was like cutting off our heads we could, or taking our eyes out. We couldn't see. So as teachers, I think we found it very difficult and exhausting really exhausting and I know that's been said a lot but it's real like I did a coaching session the other day online and it was very very good and all this but I was more tired afterwards usually when I coach as you know I it's energizing so I think I'm wondering if there's if that's the issue and now that teachers are back we've gone straight back to what we did before post-covid it's different and we haven't evolved so we've tried to just go back to status quo and we, we, we're still processing what happened um, at a psychological and deep level, spiritual level as well. So I, I wonder if that's at the heart of teachers thinking this isn't working. Um, you know, the authenticity is really important to teachers. We teach because we love young people and we love to see them grow and learn. That is our core calling. It's a vocation. And people hate it when I say that because they sort of think it's you should do it for nothing and that's why we don't get paid. And that's not what I'm saying. It's a very deep thing to want to be in a classroom. That's why not everyone can do it. So I think for teachers, they're questioning their vocation. They're questioning, is this what I signed up for? And I think they're coming up with a blank because 
we're not seeing our young people thrive and flourish. I mean, that's what we feed off is seeing them grow and learn. And they're disengaging at the rate of knots and all the data, there's hard data around that. And that's the symptom again or evidence of a disengaging curriculum that is not fit for purpose. And young people are smart. They can see that it's, it's, they're not willing to be anaesthetized by rubbish. And that's why we're seeing the behavior issues as well, because they are fighting back. Good on them. It means we've got to really listen and, and be in partnership with them to work out well, what 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 do we need to do and stop this doing unto young people and teachers and leaders in schools that the system tends to do because it's still a very patriarchal model. I actually didn't know that you were teaching during uh, the COVID time. Um, that would have been extraordinarily um, challenging and I, I really do pick up what you're saying about, um, you know, the depletion of energy that you felt after a day's work, for instance, because you're trying to use so many senses to understand through a vehicle of a computer, you know, um, of what you would usually do face to face and build that relationship up, that sense of trust. How did you cope through that time? What were your strategies? My personal practices, I have very strong personal practices of, of reflection I take time to process what I'm experiencing. I try not to get caught up in the frenetic, fast pace of schools. And so I, I'm a morning person, so I used to get up very early, do my reflective practices just to get myself into the right head and heart space for these young people and myself. And I used to go for long walks in nature. I did when I could within five kilometres for some of that time. It really was going back to nature and personal, some people might call spiritual, I don't, I just call them being attuned to, you know, um, the bigger energies of life, so to speak, and that kept me grounded. Um, and I think that's the, the revolution or evolution we, we need to return to, not just in education but as humanity. If we want to have a sense of choice and taking full responsibility for our lives and our choices, it does require inner work. And, and I think it's, it's, not, it's a skill that has to be learnt and practised and supported. I have a coach and she, she is amazing. I only see her every six weeks but... It helps me keep focused on the things that really matter and to continue being committed to the things that I know help me be present and to keep growing and walking my talk, so to speak, but so I can be with the people I'm walking with, I'm partnering with in a very um, authentic and respectful manner. If I'm not doing the work myself, that just that's just, I may as well just go and do what everyone else is doing, which is you know, create businesses for the sake. And I'm not saying money's evil or anything. I'm just saying it's about purpose and meaning. That's what drives, should be driving whatever choices we make around our work life is that it, it's meaningful, it's contributive, it's participative. That's that's my measure of success. Episode two, I spoke to Georgie Collinson, who's a number one anxiety therapist and has just written the book, um, The Anxiety Reset Method. Part of what her conversation was about was this element of vulnerability, but also trust. Trust that when uncertainty steps in, we have the knowledge and faith that it's going to be okay. And what I heard in some of what you just shared of your practices, did those practices really help you tap into the trust that it was going to be okay? 
And what did that element of trust look like for you? I have a deep trust that all of us, not just me, every one of us, if we choose to, um, have all the answers we need. Um, it's creating the space um, to rather than externalise our need for experts to tell us how to solve our problems or deal with... I'm not saying that there's not a need for professional psychological help, but I'm saying for the everyday person, you know, we do have the capacity um, to tap into our own inner wisdom and it comes down to trusting ourselves, like you're saying. But also I think it's breaking habits that we've been conditioned. We are not at fault here. There has been a societal conditioning for the past couple of decades or decades or centuries um, where we've been conditioned to be to respond, like I said, the behaviourist theory earlier, you know, to to respond to external demands of success, of whatever. And it's a big shift to actually go into a place of I trust my own internal judgments around this and when I'm not sure, I know the people I trust whom I'll check in with. Um, so it's not always a solo endeavour, I'm not saying that. But this is a really big shift in our way of being in the world that we're being called to and, you know, the capitalist society we currently are, has a stranglehold on, on us, that's that's a lot to let go of. So, But as I said, I think if every individual took back their sense of I do have wisdom, I just need to create the space and the conditions and find the people who can support me on this journey, that's, that's when we start igniting fires and they catch. I'm a great believer in the firelighters, you know, that there are enough of us out there to light fires and to empower um, the people around us to to courageously pick up themselves up and say, yes, I've got this. That sense of, you know, trusting your gut, trusting your intuition, understanding your own intuition, it often takes time and life experience, doesn't it? How do we help both young people and all of us to feel that it's okay if we don't know something and to foster that sense of curiosity to become lifelong learners. Well, that's the next education movement's job. <laughs> if you go back to um, why schools came into being, the compulsory elementary school in the US came out of the behaviourist theories, and um, but also then grew into let's create you know the compliant worker and the behaviours that we can measure externally. And that's what schools were, were, were created around that premise without going into lots of detail. So we've got to flip that on its head. And that's massive. And I'm not sure how it's done, but I think we've got to have these conversations and, and what have you. But there are a lot of schools, outlier schools, whatever, schools that are just setting up outside of the system and doing it. This is happening across the world more than most people realise because you know, we see homeschooling increasing at the rate of knots. And so they're tapping into virtual schools where young people can create their own education pathways, but they have a community learning hub in their village, so to speak, where they get the social connection and the other pieces. This is happening. This is not new. Um, I get so excited. I read every morning. That's what excites me because it fills me with hope and possibility. We're not reinventing wheels. There are pioneers out there doing this already. You just have to have eyes to see and a willingness and an openness and a curiosity to think differently. And, yes, it takes hard work. It does. But what we're doing now is is, is not working and is taking the, 
the heart out of us anyway. So why would we keep doing it? I'd rather put my energy into something else, um, which is what I'm doing. And <laughs> I am filled with hope. I, you know, you look at all civilizational stories, and there's always a tipping point where a new civilization emerges, and we're in it. And that's why it's so hard, and it feels messy and chaotic. But I tell you what, it 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 will. I have no doubt all the work that people are doing around creating the conditions for us to live differently on this planet, to respond differently, to consume differently. There's strong movements out there that we all can tap into and feel empowered by. We don't have to do it ourselves. Join communities. Have a look. There's alliances everywhere around, whether it's, you know, the local community garden, whatever, just do it. I work in a school and that's how our paths crossed. Now, I'm not a teacher. I'm on the business side of things. But earlier this year, myself and my team, we enrolled in the youth mental health first aid course, because quite frankly, it's all of our business to be invested in our young people. And it's never too late to learn. What can parents and teachers who are working with students do to help, you know, students who might be struggling with their mental health or just finding their feet again in this, you know, in this COVID era that we're, we're finding ourselves in? Mm, big question. I think I'd really encourage parents to be confident, to build the confidence in the young people. They're good enough. It's not about marks. It's, you know, to stop telling this story of your success is related to what university you go to and what ATAR you get. I'd really encourage parents to stop supporting that story because that is at the heart of a lot of certainly um, academic anxiety and in our secondary schools. So I think that would be very revolutionary for parents and, that, and a lot of parents already doing it. Don't enter into the, some of these stories. Tell a different story to your young people. Um, you know, I have a niece who who has really struggled and just finished year 12 and chose not to do any scoring and what have you. And she's really anxious about What's it mean to be a grown-up and things like that? And I think, wow, we need to rewrite the narratives, I think, that we're telling our young people. And for, for teachers, it's the same thing. You know, I see you, I value you for who you are, not by whether you get a top score or not. It's in the small things that really make the difference. And for leaders to do the same to, for their teams, what support do you need from me? I'm noticing this. How can I support you? That's more energising than doing more administration work, you know, to grow your team so that they are centred on young people, not curriculum. People first and finding different ways. My big vision is around how do we re-engage our young people with the community where they can apply their learning, where they can feel that sense of authenticity and realness, you know, it's just obscene that, you know, we've got to go into the real world. We're in the real world, for God's sake, you know. Um, so I think, you know, vocational major, support those different pathways. They're not less than the VCE. They are real options for young people. So what are the stories we're telling our young people that reinforce their mental health? I think that's where we've got to take responsibility as the adults in the schools because we are inadvertently creating um, a lot of these problems and therefore we have it within us because we project that's what humans do we project our fear we project our you know I'm going to be judged if my students aren't doing well you know so it's this domino effect that happens when we have a narrative of competition and comparison and perfectionism it's disastrous 
So whatever story for parents who listen, for teachers who listen or leaders, I, I often say I want to do the exact opposite to what everyone else is doing, not to be recalcitrant or anything like that, but because that challenges me to rethink and to, is this the way I want to be and is this the story I want to contribute to? And that's how we retrain our thinking too, to be much more autonomous and rather than just passive consumers. And there is a whole another story we could talk about, passive consumerism in the school and beyond. <laughs> Do you want to say a little bit more about that? I think it's part of the culture we live in. It's just, it just is, you know, that when we don't feel happy, we go and buy because it's a quick fix or I'll have a drink, not that I drink. I've chosen not to, to stop drinking because I wanted to have a clean mind. You know, so when we're numbing ourselves through whatever means, through busyness is the biggest numbing agent around, we're really depriving ourselves of opportunity to think. So we just consume um, to make us have that short-term, you know, we call it retail therapy, whatever you want to call it. But it's more than that. It, it's actually indicating that that void that is not to be feared but to be entered into and not filled with consuming things, whether it's feelings or people or things or ideas. Like my mum, when we were raised, we, we weren't entertained in the holidays. We were expected to entertain ourselves. That's the source <laughs> of creativity and curiosity. Not filling every day with activities. Let them be bored and send them out to play. Totally. This is the antidote to consumerism is curiosity and and thinking and and playing and I don't know. I don't think I've answered your question, but No, you have. I try to be very mindful of my emotions because it's my emotions that drive my passive consumerism. And that's part of my reflective piece. I really listen to my emotions. I love them. They give me good information. Good guidance, hey? Yeah, they're guidance systems for us. You know, what's going on here? Why am I having that reaction? So I think we've just got to re-embrace re our humanness um, and that we're not human doings. We are human beings, and that's the whole journey of becoming our potential. That's what education needs to become. You call yourself often a pracademic, which I really like. But tell me why that term resonates with you. It resonates with me because I'm a teacher at heart and I've been in the system a long time and been to a lot of professional learning and persevered. And so for me, you know, if you said to me when I was my 20-year-old self, that I would end up with a PhD, I would have laughed at you um, because that just wasn't on, I, I wasn't academically driven. I was driven to, to do well because I wanted options. But I guess where I'm circling to is um, my PhD came out of curiosity and, and passion and that's what learning is. I engaged in a PhD because I was deeply curious, I was deeply passionate and I was driven by purpose and meaning and um, I wasn't being told by my supervisors what to study, what topic I should do. They encouraged me and pushed me outside my comfort zone in terms of how I thought. And, you know, a lot of the things, the people I read back then are now flavour of the month. And I think they were so ahead of their time. And that's what I think about with education is as educators, we need to be ahead of our time. We need not be reproducing the past. And so for me, learning, I often say this, is that learning 
only happens when A, your curiosity is is ignited, then you want to think, so you choose to think, and then if you choose to think, you have a chance to learn. So learning is the outcome of curiosity and thinking. Anything else is just passive consumption, and that's hard work. And our young people struggle because we they've been entrained on social media for quick TikTok periods of time. So there's a lot of untraining that's required as well. Mm. Learning excites me. I, I'm a pracademic because I love to read, but not for the sake of it. I'll, I'll read and I think, well, what does this mean? How, how, what does this look like in practice? Knowing that particularly teachers and leaders do not have the time to consume, but then to make sense of. So often we just consume and then we get the next book. So for me, I read and then I think, how can I share this in a practical way with my colleagues? Yeah. That's a pracademic. I love it. Tell me what you're feeling uncertain about at the moment and how you're best supporting yourself. I think I'm feeling most uncertain about how people are responding to our current global issues and crises and chaos and I'm seeing some very interesting behaviours from friends, not close friends, but, you know, people in my circle. And it's been a bit discombobulating for a better word. And I can see the struggle with the old paradigms and where we're at now and this hanging on. And I think the thing that I feel uncertain about is the way I think and feel and express myself can be really threatening. Um, and I find that really difficult because I don't, that's not my intention. And so that's something I feel uncertain about as to, like even speaking with you, um, I keep myself small because I'll be really honest. I do because there is so much backlash at the moment when people speak, you know, their own truth. It's not your truth. And that unwillingness to consider different ideas and thinking. And so when you put yourself in this space, I feel very uncertain um, because I know there's always consequences, both positive, neutral and negative, and so that's my vulnerability, not weakness. I just feel very vulnerable because I've got to show up and that's a vulnerable position to be in. It's much easier, as Brené Brown talks about, to sit up in the bleachers and throw stones rather than be in the arena doing the hard work. Um, So that's my vulnerability at the moment. Hmm. How are you supporting yourself through that? Well, I have a great coach. I have good people around me. Mm. I am very considered about who I spend time with. I'm very considered about the energy, if you know what I mean, mm. the, of people. And if I feel people aren't in a space, I'll take myself out of it. So I have very clear boundaries is what I'm saying. Um, and I get into my garden and I nourish myself and I have a nature bath and that that helps me. There's a few strategies I have in play. I think you touched on a really important theme there, this kind of way of being where people can see life in very binary ways. Many of us have feeds and news feeds and things that, you know, we continually see the same content or similar content that's designed for us based on what we algorithms know that we are interested in and like. And what that can do is create a bit of an echo chamber of your own thoughts and feelings, et cetera. And the resilience around holding space for other people's views 
uh, how they might see the world and that sense of diversity can become quite limited as a result. And I feel like part of what you just expressed then is also the system that is around us that's kind of creating that um, and promoting that sense of lack of diversity and lack of being able to connect in an authentic, non-threatening way to be able to have a conversation where perhaps we've got opposing different views, but we have the trust and faith to lean into the curiosity around wanting to know more. Well, that goes back to how we started, and that requires self-awareness, self-regulation, and a willingness to be open and curious. And some days we're good at it, and other days we're not. And I think there requires a lot of self-forgiveness on this journey. Um, there's no right and wrong. We're, when we're trying to reimagine our place in the world, it's, it's, it's not perfectionism. And I think for all of us, when we get it wrong, that capacity to say, you know what, I got it wrong, but the other person's capacity to accept, you know what I mean, to, yeah. to, to have forgiveness coming both ways. Yeah. Um, because I think I, I believe in positive intent that majority of people are coming from a positive place. And I think also I love the, the notion of creating circles of trust, you know, um, where we can develop those skills in community and with people we trust and then because it's, it's not something you go and do with your polar opposite. These are skills that we need to intentionally cultivate and reflect on and we need people around us who will support us in our learning journey. If you think about learning, learning only happens when we feel safe. Learning cannot happen if we feel unsafe or there's a lack of trust. And so community, my prediction and it's not even a prediction it's already happening is we will return to community we will return to our bioregional areas um, we will you know that notion of being global we will be globally connected but very much embedded in our local and bioregional environments because that's real for us and that's where we can have our influence or a locus of control or something you know whatever if that's what you want and I don't think it's as far away as people think it's happening. It's over the tipping point. It's not in the media is all I'm saying, in the in the mainstream media, but it's everywhere. I'm so hopeful. Yeah, I have lots of visions, lots of, lots of exciting things in my head, and I think, yeah, that'll happen in time. I don't feel impatient. I feel that I'm just a bit like, you know, I said to you earlier before we started, you know, I put the chook poo down so the neighbours know I've been in the garden. <laughs> Creating the conditions, um, yeah. and when the conditions are good, things grow. Dr. Van Nichols, I always feel so much better after I've spoken to you. You have a beautiful energy. Thanks for your time on the Let's Check In podcast. Thank you. Thanks for checking in with me today. I'm your host, Susie McAvale, and if you like what you heard, please subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen and leave a review. If you'd like to find out more about the Let's Check In podcast, head to the website letscheckinpodcast.com where there's loads of information in the show notes. You can also follow us at Let's Check In Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn and TikTok. This podcast is not a licensed mental health service and it is not a substitute for professional mental health advice. If something has come up for you in this episode, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. 
This podcast has been made with the help of Pod and Pen Productions. 